David sang the praises of the glory of Jehovah. Paul preached that all is lost, save knowing Christ. John said he is precious while leaning on his bosom. So for a moment, may I humbly testify, did I mention that I love him, how I worship and adore him, when I can see no way he makes a like he deserves to be loved, but I sure love him. Turn your Bibles this morning to 1 Samuel chapter number 15, 1 Samuel chapter number 15, and uh, what a blessing it is to be in the house of God. I appreciate your prayers for me. I'm feeling much better. I don't look any better, but I feel better, amen, and uh, of course you can't improve on perfection, so that laugh didn't sound sincere, Linda. I don't know about that. 1 Samuel chapter number 15, we're going to read a lot of scripture this uh, this morning, we're going to read the entirety of the chapter, and so 
be forewarned before we uh, begin to read, but we'll use all of it with the Lord's help today. First Samuel chapter number 15, beginning in verse number 1. First Samuel chapter 15, verse number 1. The Bible says, Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek, utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telium. 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid it wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, Go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to Shur. That is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse that they destroyed utterly. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place, and is gone about, and passed on, and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears, the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? Samuel, Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things, which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice." and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, 
he hath also rejected thee from being king. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned about to go away, he laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle, and it rent. Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord thy God. So Samuel turned again after Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then said Samuel, Bring ye hither to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came unto him delicately, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. Samuel said, As thy sword hath made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house to Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, thank you for your patience. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the word of God. Use it in our hearts and our minds this morning. And may Christ be magnified with everything that takes place. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. When we approach this passage of Scripture, there are three important facts that frame what transpires here. And I want you to notice them with me. Now, you may have noticed them already. This may seem redundant, but I think it is worthwhile to just state these things before we get into Saul and Samuel's interaction in this passage. I want you to notice with me, number one, there is a clear commandment of God given in this passage. Verse number three, God tells Saul, now go and smite Amalek. Now, the Amalekites are the descendants of the grandson of Esau. And whenever the children of Israel came out of Egypt, the Amalekites fell upon them and sought to destroy them. God didn't forget that. You know, God never forgets anything. Amen. And God didn't forget that. And so now God is is sending, commissioning Saul to go and to slay them. But notice the exact terms that God uses. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not. But slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. So the word of God was given to Saul and a clear commandment is given. God is not uncertain in what he says here. Aren't you glad the word of God is clear? Aren't you glad that God didn't give us a riddle book? I understand there might be times that in the infirmity of our flesh and the weakness of our understanding, there might be things that we struggle with. But God has not created a puzzle book for us to try to unriddle and unravel. I always sort of laugh when I see these books come out about the secret code of the Bible. And if you take this letter and then skip eight letters and then take that letter and then skip seven letters, then multiply it by three and then ignore that one extra letter. Man, you can make the Bible say anything if you do that. Amen. You might as well just say, just pour out a bowl of alphabet soup and pick whatever letters you want, and there's your message. But the biggest problem with those 
books is not just that they're, uh, you know, uh, snake oil. It's not just that they're, they're incorrect, but they're also wrong-headed in their perspective because they assume that God is hiding things from us in the Bible. I would have you know, if God didn't want to tell us something, He wasn't bound to tell us anything. If He gave us His book, He must want us to know something about Him. So the Word of God is a clear commandment to your life and my life and how to live. And God is not uncertain in His terms of what He expects from us. Then look with me at verse number 7. The Bible says, And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to shore that is over against Egypt. Now, it starts out good, it appears. Uh, This is the Holy Ghost way of saying He whooped them up one side down the other, all over the place, from Havilah down even to shore. He whooped them. But verse 8 says this, And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, that they utterly destroyed. So there's a clear commandment given in the Word of God to King Saul. But now I want you to notice there's, and I'm going to say it in two ways. Number one, it is a partial obedience. He does part of what God wants, but he does not do all of what God wants. But we'll notice as we move through this text that God doesn't say, well, Saul, good on you for doing part of what I commanded you. But rather, he makes it clear to Saul That partial obedience is complete disobedience. Let's say it this way. There is a clear commandment in this passage, but then there is a direct disobedience that takes place. Put in simple terms, and Saul does everything he can to put it in as unsimple terms as he can here in a few moments. But put simply, he did not obey what God commanded. Uh, One of the things that's frustrating as a parent is when you give your children commands and they don't obey in their entirety. Sometimes my kids, I, I, I can't unriddle them sometimes. Sometimes I'll, I'll tell them do something. They'll do the exact opposite of what I say. And uh, sometimes I'll tell them do something. They'll do part of what I tell them to do. I, I'll tell them. I'll say, go pick that up. Move it over there. They'll pick up something entirely different that I didn't even talk about. And then go put it in the garbage can. I'm thinking, what's the matter with you? You dropped it on your head or something, you know? <clears throat> but I wonder how God feels about you and about I. When he's been abundantly clear in the word of God about what he expects out of us. And then we either partially obey partial obedience and slow obedience is disobedience. Most of us would not and should not accept it from our kids. But why would we expect our God to accept it from us? So there is a clear commandment and there is a direct disobedience. And then notice verse number 10. The Bible says, then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. Now, why did this grieve Samuel so? Well, partially because he loved Saul. He did not want to see Saul go this direction. But partially because he knew that implicit in the commandment of God and implicit in what God had said to him that Samuel was now going to be tasked with going and confronting Saul over his sin. Let's say it this way, and we see it unfold in the following portion of our passage. There's a clear commandment, there's a direct disobedience, but finally there's a prophetic proclamation 
of judgment upon Saul for his disobedience to the Lord. Notice how your Bible says it in verse 10, then. Now, what what does it mean when it says then at that moment? In other words, at the moment that Saul disobeyed the Lord, the Lord immediately knew. You know, you can't hide anything from God. We're so foolish. We're so silly. We sometimes treat it like God's waiting to find out what we've done. But you know, God knows immediately what we've done wrong. In fact, He knew what we would do wrong even before we've done it. That doesn't absolve us of guilt. We've still chosen to do it. But we can't hide anything from God. The eyes of the Lord are upon all things everywhere. Evil men, righteous men, upon His children, upon the people of this world. He sees all things. And He sees what you do and what I do. But then notice that God will not skirt our sin, but He will confront us over our sin. Now that's a troubling thing, but it really ought to be a blessed thing. Aren't you glad the Lord loves you enough that He'll confront you when you've done something wrong? God didn't ignore what Saul had done. He didn't paper over it. He didn't pretend as though it had not happened. But rather, he sends Samuel straight away to go and to confront Saul. And I promise you this, if you're God's child and you sin, God will speak to you about it. He will deal with you about it. He will deal with your life. So you say, well, preacher, <coughs> that's good, but I could learn that in a child Sunday school class. How does that help me this morning? What I want us to notice is then the conversations that unfold between Saul and Samuel. When we read through these next uh, dozen or so scriptures, what we find is a master class in dancing around the subject of sin that you've committed. I want to preach to you on this thought this morning, the lies that we tell ourselves. The lies that we tell ourselves. See, the truth of the matter is, you and I both, because we're just as flesh and bone as Saul was, when we sin against God, we have the same tendency to try to put the same spin on the same sin that Saul himself did. And rarely will we just confront it, confess it, repent it, and ask God to cleanse it. No, no, most of the time in our stubbornness, we try to follow this same path. We pile heartache upon heartache guilt upon shame, embarrassment upon embarrassment, because we just won't be direct in dealing with our sin. One of the marks of spiritual maturity. You know this to be true because it's true in our relationships in life. A mark of maturity is a person's willingness to admit they were wrong and to get that thing right. And it's no different in your relationship with God. One of the marks of spiritual maturity is a willingness to confess that sin before God and ask His forgiveness and get it right. And so when we look at Saul's behavior, <coughs> when we look at the lies that he tells, we really find in many ways a picture of the lies that we tell ourselves when we're trying to avoid doing what we know we must do and get a matter right. Before God, I want you to notice these five lies this morning and then we'll be done. Look at verse number 13. The Bible says, and Samuel came to Saul and Saul said unto him, blessed be thou of the Lord. Then notice this statement he makes. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. What's Samuel's response to this verse 14? He just asked a simple question that should be obvious to anyone. He says, what meaneth in this bleating of the sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear. Notice with me lie number one. Notice Saul's denial. You know, the very first thing that Saul does is simply tries to pretend as though no sin 
has been committed in the first place. You know, very often this is our first strategy is to just try to bluff God and pretend like we didn't know we did what we did in the very first place. I found that uh, my children do this. I probably did this when I was a child. And some of us have developed good spiritual poker faces this way. We know how to put the mask on, put the smile on, pretend as though nothing's wrong, pretend as though what we know is eating and burrowing deep in our soul, what we know that we've done, it haunts our memory, it stalks our conscience day in and day out is simply not even in existence in the first place. Notice number one here, his bold shamelessness. What an arrogant thing it was for Saul to look at Samuel. He's surrounded. He's surrounded by the proof of the sin he's committed. And yet he still has the gall to look at Samuel, smile right in his eyes, and pretend as though nothing's wrong in the first place. Notice not only his bold shamelessness, but in Samuel's answer we see the bleeding of the sheep. I'd say this, hey, listen, we can try to pretend as though nothing's wrong, but at the end of the day, if nothing's wrong, why are we having to pretend so hard in the first place? As uh, the old writer said once ago, uh, thou protestest too much. The truth of the matter is, the only reason a person has to try so hard to convince is because they're trying to convince themselves in the first place. I don't know about you, but I have this very same exercise that takes place often when the Holy Ghost of God has spoken to my heart. It tends to happen at the end of sermons. I don't know why that is. It tends to happen when the piano's playing, when the altar calls open. And something that God's dealt with me all service about all of a sudden. It's like it never happened in the first place. And I will literally do mental gymnastics to try to forget and and ignore the very thing that God has spoken to me about in the first place. But the truth of the matter is, try and ignore it as you may, but the sheep won't quit bleeding. The ox won't quit lowing. The only way to deal with sin, hey, if we don't deal with it, you know what God told Cain? He said it lieth at the door. If it ain't dealt with, it don't go nowhere. How many Christians have lived ages, talking about decades, with some unconfessed sin in their life that through pride or stubbornness, they simply refuse to even acknowledge is there in the first place. Sometimes we think if we acknowledge that it's there, then it is some sort of tacit commitment that we're never going to commit a sin again. But you know, the truth of the matter is, that's the devil's lie. You don't have to promise you're never going to sin again to get sin right. I want to say that again. I want to say it real clear. That doesn't mean that we confess it with a mind to sin again. But what it does mean is if your threshold for getting something right with God is I'm never going to sin again in my life, then I'm sorry, you're just never going to get things right with God. Imagine if that was the standard that we tried to maintain in our relationships one with another. Imagine if you had wronged someone and before they'd forgive you, you had to promise that you were never, ever, ever going to do anything wrong to them ever again. You'd look at them and you'd say, love you as I may. I'd have to lie to you to tell you that I can promise that I will never hurt you again. That I could promise that I'll never do anything wrong again. And yet, how often do we let that same outlandish standard prevent us from admitting to God that we've done something wrong in the first place? If we admit we're wrong, we've got to get it right. And sometimes the simplest thing for us is just to not admit that we're wrong in the first place. We see this lived out on the world stage in politics 
uh, day by day. I'll tell you this. Things are not going to. I don't know if this will get me arrested or not. I don't care. Things are not going to start changing our country until we start arresting politicians that have committed crimes. Because we have this thing, this sick delusion in our mind that if we can just prove their hypocrisy, that somehow they'll quit being that way. But I'm going to be honest with you. They're not hypocrites. They just have power. People that have power can live in ways that people that are powerless cannot. You're not going to change the world. You're not going to shake the foundation of things by proving to them that they're hypocrites. They know they're hypocrites. They wear it as a badge of honor because it is proof of their power. And so this idea that if we just show them that they've done something wrong, well, that'll really teach them. They know they've done something wrong. They flaunt it in your face to show you that you're powerless and can't stop them from doing those things that are wrong. You say, preacher, what's this got to do with the message? Here's what I'm sick of. Happens all the time. They'll go up to them and they'll say, now we just had this scandal that broke. We just had this thing that happened. We just have this proof that you lied. We just have this, this or that. They'll say, no comment. Turn around and walk off. And that generally ends the matter. No comment. Turn around. Walk off. Here's the truth of the matter. It doesn't resolve things, does it? It doesn't fix things. Have you ever felt better about a politician when they answered no comment? You ever thought, oh, okay, all right, well, that settles things. I was not aware of the extenuating circumstances of no comment. Now I understand. You know, the truth of the matter is, you know what we do? The Holy Ghost comes, knocks on our door, says, hey, what about this? What about this that you've done? What about this that you've participated in? What about this that you've allowed? We say, uh, no comment. And turn around and walk off. It don't fly in public life ultimately. Let me tell you this. It don't fly in your walk with God either. I see his first lie. It's the lie of Saul's denial. But then notice verse 15. <coughs> Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. This is interesting, Saul's reply, and he, he repeats this here in a moment. He keeps talking about that which is good, that which is the best, and he's using human reasoning here because God didn't need more sheep. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's why he says later to obey is better than sacrifice, to hearken than the fat of rams because what God really wanted was obedience. But Saul uses this terminology not because it's going to fool God, But here's what he's doing. Samuel says, you say you've obeyed God. You say you've performed the commandment of the Lord, Saul. But what about these sheep? What about these oxen? And here's what Samuel said, or what Saul says. He says, oh, those, that ain't nothing. That ain't nothing. Don't worry about those. We did what really matters. What you see out there, that's really nothing to get all up in arms about in the first place. Let me say it this way. We see Saul's denial. Number two, we see Saul's dismissiveness. He now acknowledges and admits that he's not obeyed the commandment of the Lord. But his answer is simply this. Calm down, Samuel. It's no big deal. We've done most of what God wanted. And we did that which was really important. And what you're seeing around here, Samuel, is really no big deal. We can live with this level of disobedience. How often do we say to the Lord after he's nailed us to the wall, God? It's really not that big of a deal, is it? I can't tell you the numbers of times 
in my adult Christian life that I have heard people say to me, Preacher, is this really that big of a deal? Preacher, does this really matter? Preacher, is this really important? I like David's mighty men in the Old Testament. Uh, I love to read about them, their exploits. There's, there's the fellow that he fought till his hand claved into the shape of the sword. And, and uh, then, then there's that boy, Brother Charlie, you know, Ben Ai, he goes down into the pit on a snowy day and, and, and kills a lion. I'm mean, just amazing thing. But you know, my favorite one is the old boy that fought over a patch of lentils. I am not a vegetarian. I know, take a moment to process that. I, I'm, I'm a meat eater. I mean, I, I, I don't, I can eat vegetables if they fall on my plate, you know? If I'm, if I'm at the salad bar getting bacon to put on my macaroni and cheese and an olive falls on the plate or something, that's alright. You know, I don't mind healthy living, I'll eat that olive. But here's this fella, and he's fighting to the death over a patch of lentils. How many of you have heard somebody say this before? Why, that don't amount to a hill of beans. Don't tell this boy that. He'll cut your throat over a hill of beans. You say, oh, preacher, that's silly. The Word of God calls him mighty. Why is that? Why does God go out of his way to tell us that this man is fighting over a, a patch of ground that's raising really what amounts to animal feed? Why? You say, preacher... It's just a hill of beans. Preacher, it's just lentils. Yeah, but it was God's lentils. And if it was God's lentils, it was worth fighting over. And I can't tell you the numbers of times I've heard people say, Oh, preacher, does it really matter? Here's my question. Does it matter to God? If it matters to God, it should matter to you and I. If it doesn't matter to God, okay. But if it matters to God, if God has gone far enough out of His way to put it in His holy word, then it must matter. You understand that this book may look big to you if all you're used to reading is highlights magazines in the dental office. But you understand that this is the sum total of God's recorded words to humanity. And if he puts something in this book, it must be pretty important. Because in the grand scope of things, hey, you and I speak more words than what's in this book in a day or two. And yet God summed up his word to humanity in this book. If it's got a place in this Bible, it must matter. It must matter. Very often when we commit sin, we, ah, you know, it ain't no big deal. It ain't no big deal. It does not matter. And here's the problem. Saul's saying, it's not a big deal to me. But the question is not whether it's a big deal to you. I've found that my sin is rarely a big deal to me. The question is, is it a big deal to God? So notice, we see his dismissive description in verse 50. Ah, this ain't nothing. But notice the divine description down in verse 19. Here's what Samuel says back to him. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? <coughs> Saul says, it's no big deal. Just a few sheep, just a few oxen. And Samuel says, you're missing the point. You fell upon, you flew upon, you prayed upon that which belonged to only God himself. You disregarded the word of God. You did evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, I hate to tell you this. Your friends may help you. Your your family may give you cover. But the Holy Ghost ain't going to give you no quarter about sin. 
He's not. I know society may clap for you, your friends that you have carefully curated to tolerate whatever sin that you want to participate in. They may make excuses for you, but God loves you too much. The Holy Ghost loves you too much to cover for you and give you quarter and lie about your sin. He's not going to characterize it as anything other than what it is. It's sin. The story in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, about this old boy that's out gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. When they find him doing it, they take him and sentence him to death and stone him to death. One of the uh, commentators that I was reading after made this comment that to observe that and to consider that to be a harsh punishment is to denigrate the word of God and to charge God as a cruel master for imposing that standard upon his people. You say, it's just picking up sticks. No, it's disobeying the word of God. Preacher, it's just a few sheep. It's just a few oxen. Am I not entitled? No, you're not. You got bought out when you got born again. You lost your rights. You have a right to live in victory in Christ. You don't have a right to live in sin and disobedience. I see Saul's dismissiveness, but then notice verse 20. (coughs) Saul realized he ain't getting nowhere with this. So he says in verse number 20, he said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things, which should have been utterly, he sounds real spiritual now, yeah, should have been utterly destroyed. Get them, Samuel, to sacrifice in the Lord thy God in Gilgal. Notice the third lie, we see his deflection. It's not my fault, it's somebody else's fault. They drug me into it. They got me into it. I did the right thing. You know, it's funny the way he describes that because uh, one of the Amalekites that was kept alive was the king, Agag. I wouldn't imagine anybody would have had the authority to pardon that king except King Saul himself. But you see, rationale and logic and reason can be easily and cheaply sacrificed on the altar of self-indulgence when we want to perform sin. We find all kinds of excuses. And then at the very end of all of it, we see his scapegoat. He points to someone else and said, they're the ones that dragged me into it. Saul's in a unique position, for he is the only person in that kingdom that cannot be commanded to do anything. And yet he's claiming that he had no choice in this matter. You know, the truth is, there's only one person that gets to decide how you live and what you do. I, that's tough. It's tough on me. I don't know if that hurt you any. It hurt my heart a little bit. I'm the only one that controls my actions. And you are the only one that controls yours. You may blame somebody else for dragging you into it. But at the end of the day, uh, if you hadn't wanted to commit it, you wouldn't have committed it. I'll tell you this, I've never committed a sin against my will. Never been a time. There's never been a time I've committed a sin that I didn't want to commit. Every sin I've ever committed, I committed because I wanted to. And that's true for you as well. We see his scapegoat, but notice his sinfulness. Verse 22, uh, Samuel don't give him no quarter. He said, hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness 
is as iniquity and I die. Boy, that hurts. Stubbornness. Are you listening? Stubbornness. Stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Samuel lays it right out, man. He says, you know, Saul, at the end of the day, you know what God wants more than anything? He wants obedience. You know what God wants out of your life more than anything is obedience. But preacher, I go to church. Yeah, what he wants is obedience. He said, but preacher, I read my Bible. Yeah, what he wants is obedience. He said, but preacher, I'm trying to lead my family. Yeah, what he wants is obedience. You see, none of those things are of any effect when we live with sin in our life. We may boast in them, but God's not impressed by them. Because at the end of the day, the measure of our love for him is not our outward service, but rather it's our inward devotion and sanctification. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He didn't say, if you love me, be a superstar Christian. He didn't say, if you love me, go win a thousand people to Christ. He didn't say, if you love me, be a model church member. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. But preacher, I'm trying to win a thousand people to Christ. Preacher, I'm, I'm trying to be a superstar Christian. Preacher, I'm trying to be a model church member. I'll tell you this. If you'll keep his commandments, you'll be whatever he wants you to be. And you'll do whatever he wants you to do. But if you won't keep his commandments, it doesn't matter what you're trying to be or do. None of that impresses God. He just sets him right down and says, Saul, at the end of the day, that's all good and well. I guess that's good that you slew all those Amalekites. But listen, without complete obedience, it's not it's not the service of the Lord. It's just murder for advancement. He points him to the fact that what he had done was not a noble act that fell short, but was rather the equivalent of witchcraft, idolatry, and iniquity. I see Saul's live deflection, but then notice a fourth one, verse 24. The Bible says this, Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned. It's the first time he said it. Took him that long to say it. He finally said it, but then he messes it up. You ever heard somebody say something and wish they'd quit talking? You ever said something yourself and in retrospect you thought, I should have stopped right there. He said, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in thy words. Then he says this, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now this is a little bit of an extension of the previous lie. But notice Saul's distortion here. He says, well, Samuel, I had to. If I hadn't, they would have killed me. If I hadn't, they would have forced me. If I hadn't, they would have made me, Samuel. You don't understand. I love the Lord. I want to do right. But I'm just too yellow to do it. I just lack the ability to be able to do the right thing. I'm too afraid of them to be able to do right. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. You've never been put in a situation where your only choice was to sin. You've never been put in a situation where your only choice was to sin. And at the end of the day, there's not a single person in here that lacks, if you're saved by the grace of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, that lacks the ability to resist temptation. Now, listen, lest you think I'm foolishly charging you. You say, preacher, you don't ever sin every day. Far more than I wish I did. But when I do, it's not because I couldn't help it. And the devil didn't make me do it. And it's not that I was just put in a situation. Let's just stop with the childish lies. It's not that I was put in a situation. I got myself in a situation. 
It's not that I couldn't help it. I didn't want to help it. It's not that I had no choice. I made a choice. At the end of the day, we may claim that we were helpless, but at the end of the day, it's simply a pitiful excuse. We see in verse 24 his pitiful excuse. How does God answer that? Verse 28, we see his painful expulsion. Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. This is interesting. You know, Paul told us in the New Testament, and people have distorted and misinterpreted this verse. Paul tells us in the New Testament that there hath no temptation taken us, but such as is common to man, but that God will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And people have said what that means is God will never put more on us than what we can bear. It's not true. The word temptation has two different connotations to it, two different aspects. And James chapter 1 reveals this clearly. It uses it in both senses. Temptation can be trials and afflictions, a trial, a test. But it can also mean the solicitation to do evil and to do wrong. When Paul uses it, writing to the church at Corinth, when he says there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. He's talking about the solicitation to do evil. And he's saying that there's no temptation you'll face that God won't give you the choice to walk away from. Say, but preacher, it might cost me. Well, it probably will. It not just might. If the devil's doing his job, it definitely will cost you something. But it'll cost you far less than it would if you participated in it. It cost Joseph his coat, but he kept his integrity. Hey, listen, it cost Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego a trip into the fiery furnace, but they kept their testimony. It cost Daniel a night in the lion's den, but God preserved him. Probably will cost you something to choose to do right. The devil's doing his job, and he always does his job. But at the end of the day, you have a choice that you can make. Here's what we say. Now, preacher, you don't understand. The devil made me do it. I'm too weak. I just can't help it. I, I just have no ability to resist it. It's not within me. That's what Samuel or what Saul said. And notice that God's answer is, if you really believe that, Saul, let me just take that kingdom away from you. Because you got no business reigning over it in the first place. Notice what he calls himself, the strength of Israel. Notice, man, I mean, I'm talking about it's harsh. We talk about hard preaching. And there ain't really no hard preaching. We just, we just, there's just soft living that runs into hard truth. And God, God, he gives some hard truth. He said, I'm going to take that kingdom from you, Saul, and I'm going to give you to a, give it to a neighbor that is better than you are. Why did God say that? Because Saul's saying, Lord, I just, I'm not good enough. God says, all right, you believe that? Give me that kingdom back. I'll give it to somebody that believes they can keep my commandments. Here's the truth. Many of the blessings of God. God has never blessed you with anything that you couldn't in humility and with his grace keep to his honor, glory, and integrity. And he's never put you in a position where your only choice was to sin. If you start playing this game with God saying, oh, God, I just couldn't help it. I just couldn't help it. You just watch God shrink the acreage of your life and make you live by those words. Oh, preacher, you just don't understand. I just, you you don't understand. I just can't take care of it. I can't help myself. I can't keep myself. He might put you in a situation where you've got no choice. 
He might put you, he say, oh, preacher, you don't understand. I just, you know, it's hard. I, I, I just, uh, the, it's too much money they're offering me. He might take that job away. Amen. Oh, preacher, you just don't understand. You know, it's too much temptation. I mean, just the things that I see, the things in front of, he might take your eyes away. Oh, preacher, you just don't understand. I mean, this person in my life, they're, they're precious to me. And I know this relationship has become more than what it needs to be. He might take them away or he might take you out of that situation. Say, so, preacher, you just, you don't understand. I mean, I, I know I got a weak spot for my kids. Well, I'd be careful. I'd be careful. I'd be careful scapegoating my carnality on my kids. Lest God took them away. To show that at the end of the day, it wasn't them, it was me. I'd be careful scapegoating that sin on something, lest God take it away. Saul said, you don't understand, it's the people. God said, well, let me just help you with that then, Saul. And I'll take that kingdom right away from you. I see his distortion. I see a final thing, and this is probably the scariest of all. Now, (coughs) Saul looks at Samuel, and he says, I've sinned. He says, but I want you to turn around and come back and worship with me. Actually, what he says is this. I want you to pardon me of my sin and then come back and worship with me. And God's reply is, I'm not going to pardon you of this sin. You've rejected me. I've rejected you. Now, that ought to be enough to break a man. You'd think. I mean, imagine God saying, I've rejected you. I'm done with you. I'm putting you on a shelf because I can't get anything good out of your life. You'd think that would have turned him to dust and ashes. But in verse 30, then he said, I have sinned. Now, this is after God's already said all that. This is after Samuel said, I'll not turn back with you. God's forsaken you. God's abandoned you. And this is what he says, yet honor me now. I pray thee before the elders of my people and before Israel and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord thy God. So Samuel turned again after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. The first lie is the lie of denial, then the lie of dismissiveness, then the lie of deflection, and the lie of distortion. But here's the final lie we tell, is the lie of Saul's deception. God has forsaken him. God has abandoned him. Now let me make two statements about that. One, this in the New Testament, we have no fear that God will ever leave us nor forsake us. But I don't believe, even in the Old Testament, that God rejecting Saul was God saying, I will cast you into hell. You want my opinion, and I'm going to go ahead and split with half y'all about this and, 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 and most preachers, I guess. But I believe that Saul was a believer. I believe he had righteousness imputed unto him. You say, give me chapter and text, preacher. Well, when Saul goes to the witch of Endor and Samuel appears to him, and there's a lot that goes on there that I can't explain, but Samuel tells Saul that him and his sons would be with him before the next day. Now, you can claim what he means is in Hades and and he means, you know, there where the rich man was, but I don't really think that uh, Saul would place or Samuel would place semantics and word tricks with Saul. I think when he says, you and your sons will be with me, I think he means with me. Now, you don't have to accept that. We can fuss and fight. If you want, I'll meet you in the parking lot. (laughs) We'll get out the gloves and and we'll settle it like men. But I'm of that belief. 
And and by the way, that was all after this moment. So I don't think that whenever it says the Lord hath rejected thee, it's saying, all right, no more, no more faith for you, no more salvation, no more righteousness for you. I believe that just as the Bible explicitly said, what did he reject him? He rejected him from being king over Israel. And so while certainly it would be appropriate to say in the New Testament, we have no fear that God will forsake us or leave us. I think it could be said in the Old Testament, they need have no fear that God would forsake or leave them because he's the Lord God, he changeth not. I think understanding the right context and perspective on what God means when he says he forsook him is what's key here. I think what he's saying is this, not that I don't love you anymore, Saul, not that, not that I hate you or that, that I'm done with you as my, as my person, as, as a believer, as, as a follower, but rather what he's saying is, I'm done publicly endorsing you. He's saying, I'm done with you as king. I'll not bless your life anymore. I, I'll not advance you anymore. I'll not, I'll not prop you up in your sin. Can I tell you something? God's not going to help you play the hypocrite. But the thing that's disturbing of all this is Saul knows all of these things, but he's still content to go up there in front of all of Israel and offer his little sacrifices and chant his psalms and go through the process and go through the worship. In other words, He got to a place where he was contented to live in and with his sin, but pretend as though everything was all right with God anyway. That's the most terrifying place a man can be in. I'm going to be honest with you. You you learn, you, you get comfortable with being a hypocrite, there ain't much help for you. If you're willing to lie to God with impunity in your soul, there's not much help for you. If you're willing to say, yeah, I know I'm phony. I just don't care. There's not much help for you. I see his spiritual display in verses 30 and 31. But here in verse 34, 35, once you notice outwardly there was a spiritual display, but inwardly there was a spiritual decline. The Bible says this, verse 34, Then Samuel went to Ramah, that's one way, and Saul went up to his house to Gibeah of Saul. That's another direction. Verse 35, Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Now, you may say, oh, well, preacher, I guess he lost a good friend. No, it's more than that. Samuel's the prophet of Israel. He's the voice of God for the nation, for that generation. And he had been the personal counselor and advisor to Saul. Saul had literally had the voice of God present daily in his life. Samuel had poured the oil over his head out of the horn when he was anointed. Samuel had been the one that had prayed for him and had supported him and had loved him. But now all of a sudden, here's what happens. Saul's going a direction and Samuel says, I'm sorry, Saul, I'm not going to go that way with you. And so they part ways and never again on this side of the grave does Saul hear the voice of Samuel. You know, We think it's scary when God deals with us. What's really terrifying is when he stops. One of the scariest statements in the Old Testament. God is dealing with Israel in the book of Hosea and he describes how he's tried to deal with them. That he's come amongst them like a moth that 
that corrupts away like rust that cankers, like a lion that tears and devours. But God's final statement about Israel is simply this. He says, I will go. I will go. He says, I've pleaded with you and you wouldn't hearken. I've begged you and you wouldn't listen. So finally, he says this, Ephraim's given to idols. Let her alone. And God says, I will go. You never have to worry about losing your salvation. You never have to worry about the Spirit of God departing from you. But you better listen now. You absolutely can get in a shape where the Spirit of God is grieved and quenched in your life. Where you ain't hearing the voice of God anymore. Where God's not blessing your life. And when God has said, I've done all that I can with them, I'll not strive. Hey, listen, you remember the, the ministry of the Lord Jesus. You know, one of his themes was this, uh, that a, a, a uh, broken reed, a bruised reed he would not break, that a smoking flax he would not quench, that he would not strive with man. In other words, he was saying this, I won't make you. It's going to have to be your choice. That bruised reed, he's saying, I'm not going to put so much pressure on it till it breaks. That smoking flax, that wick of a candle that's no longer flaming but is just smoking. He says, I'll not quench it. I'll not force you. I'll not make you. It's going to be your choice. At the end of the day, you keep telling him no. Sooner or later, he's going to say, all right. All right. Live in your sin. Live with the heart heartache. Live with the pain. Live with the loss. Because I'm not going to make you. God has gone to great lengths. God has literally watched billions step off into the pit of hell. People that were created in His image that Christ died for, the hairs of whose head, He knew every number of them because He respects man's free will. You think He ain't going to respect yours? Say, oh, preacher, He'll make me. No, He won't. If you won't get it right, it won't be gotten right. Say, preacher, you really think God let me live... The rest of my days was sin in my life. If you purpose to do so, he will. Those days might be shorter than they otherwise could have been. Yeah, he'll let you live that way. He won't stop you from doing it. But at the end of the day, he's not going to strive with you. Samuel said, I'm not going to argue with you, Saul. You've gone this direction, but I'm not going to go that direction with you. And they parted ways. And the voice of God grew silent in Saul's life. By the way, it's interesting when you go... From this point forward, chapter 16, he meets David and uh, chapter 17 and, and, and all of the anger and all of the hostility and all of the bitterness and all of the hate. It all comes after the voice of God is silent in his life. That Saul that we think of, Brother Charlie, when we think of, 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 of wicked King Saul, he wasn't that way up till this point. Chapter 2 earlier, he's prophesying in the Spirit of the Lord. Chapter 2 earlier, he's he's the choice of God for the nation. I know he was man's choice, but God said if he'll follow me, he can be my choice. Everything, everything wicked, everything bad you know about Saul's life, all of the spiral and decline and decay, it all happens after this point. Why? Because when he had sin in his life, instead of confessing it, And forsaking it, he settled into it. He grew comfortable with it. And even when it meant playing the hypocrite, standing up and leading in worship, pretending like everything was okay, he said, that's all right. I'll do that. 
I'll maintain appearances even if it grieves the heart of God and the lies we tell ourselves. How much would we be helped if we were mature enough to just say, I'm not going to play games. I love God more than I love the opinions of men. And I'm willing to get this thing right before God and confess it before him. Say, preacher, but it's just a little sin. Hey, that little city of Zoar is the reason that Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt. It's just a little one, is what they said. Say, it's just a little sin, preacher. Uh, I understand there's degrees of sin, but no sin is little in God's eyes. You say, oh, preacher, it's no big deal. That's what Saul said. That sin that was no big deal silenced the voice of God in his life. That sin that you say is no big deal can silence the voice of God. Can you live without the voice of God? You say that you can't. You say you need His guidance. You say you need His wisdom. Say, preacher, how do you know I say that? Because you're here today. You say that. If you really believe that, are you ready to live without it? Because that sin, oh, it's just a little one, preacher. It don't have to be a big one. If it becomes our idol, it's enough to silence God's voice. Don't do that. We have a God. Hey, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you ain't right with God, you don't have to stay wrong with him. You can get right today, today, if you'll come to him. Let's bow together. This musician comes to play. The altar's open. If you have business with God, then you know you shouldn't wait even a moment. You should slip out of your seat right now and meet him down here. The altar's open. Musician, come to the piano. God dealt with your heart. Would you meet him down here? Say, preacher, it's embarrassing. Not nearly as embarrassing as your life being made shipwrecked. Preacher, is it really that big of a deal? I don't know. Has God said something about it? I guess if he did, it's a big enough deal. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.